We turn again to Acts chapter 2 and uh, 37 and 38. Acts 2, 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. Now, Peter's expectations when he preached here to the people in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, his expectations were quite different from many evangelistic preachers today. Contemporary evangelists speak so that people will take the step of believing they are Christians. Peter preached for the end that his hearers would firstly know who Jesus Christ was. That he was the Son of God, that he was risen from the dead, he was exalted, he was in charge of our lives in their totality. Peter preached in order that they would be cut to the heart for their attitude to God the Father and God the Son, and that they would be ashamed of much of their lives, how they'd spent them, what they'd said, what they'd shouted out then, um, 50 days earlier, when they nailed the Son of God to the cross, and Peter was longing for them to be convicted for what they had done. And so he took the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and he thrust it into their hearts again and again and again and again and again. And while they were repentant, he was pitiless and he was very successful because 3,000 men became disciples of Jesus Christ by that sermon. God honored his longings his actions and his words. He hadn't shouted at them. He hadn't been angry with them. He hadn't just upset them. He'd used no psychological devices, um, no trickery to get them to make a decision. But by the truth of what he told them concerning Jesus Christ, and that fact pressed on them. You, yes, I'm talking about you now. He was saying to them, they had to answer to a God who had made the Lord that they had crucified. God and Christ. And Peter also preached in this way, that after he had preached to them, he expected them to come to him and to the other 120, to them and uh, to talk to them. He expected it. He didn't tell them. No, afterwards, I'll be here for you to come to and uh, you can speak to me. He didn't. Tell them, didn't need to tell them that. They, they knew that. They knew. They came to him. In other words, he wasn't interested in them feeling vaguely guilty for wasting away their lives. And uh, that they then did what people do today, have non-stop television in the evenings to dull the evening hours. And then um, drinking and a stream of relationships and drugs to fill the vacuum. He, he found no comfort at all in the fact that they'd messed up their lives and that they knew it. That, that didn't help him at all. But he longed for them to, to look now for gospel Christians, evangelical Christians, and go to them and, and say, uh, well, what are we to do about this? These things are frightening. These things are true. You tell us. Because you've been with Jesus and you know about Jesus and we don't tell us. 
what we are to do. And from that moment on, it would be like that. There would be a dependence on gospel Christians. They they would look for them and they would meet them. They continued in um, the apostles' teaching and the apostles' fellowship. There were those that criticized and grumbled and said, well, we think some things are good about Jesus, but not others. But they didn't bother with them. Where there was a fellowship of apostles and a teaching of apostles that they had received from Jesus Christ. And that's they would say, so what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What am I to do because of these things? So I'm saying then, in these ways, the claims, the the concerns of Peter in evangelism are very different from lots of people today. I wonder if lots of people today would think they'd had a successful meeting if, as a result, there'd be people deeply convicted, deeply troubled, and looking for um, some answer, some way, some, something to do now. And this is what Peter then did. He spoke to them about then the, the livingness and the might and the majesty of Jesus Christ. He was conscious that as he preached, uh, Jesus was at his right hand. And uh, the Spirit of God was working in the meeting. And so he was emboldened to address them so vigorously. And he told them, when they asked him what they had to do, that they had to repent. That was the first great word on his lips. So I want this morning to look at the evangelical grace of repentance. How important it is. That's why God had started a work in Libya and Cyrene and Egypt and in Greece and in Turkey and had been working some months earlier and had organized it so much that these thousands of people had traveled from there to come to Jerusalem this very day for the Feast of Pentecost in order for them to hear Peter and know the power of the Holy Spirit and to be told that they were to repent. How important to God is repentance? You just think of the frequency of the terms repent and repentance in in the New Testament. Fifty-six times they occur. It means to convert, to turn, to turn, to change your mind. You read the New Testament, you turn over a, a page, two pages, and there you are, John the Baptist. And that was his great theme, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He was preparing the way for the coming of the Son of God into the people of God. And uh, he did that by telling them to repent. And when Jesus uh, then, baptized by him, uh, began to announce his ministry, it was to call sinners to repentance. That's why the Son of God has come. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he said. And when he sent out his disciples to preach, it was they went out and preached that people should repent. Mark 6.12. And after his resurrection from the dead, that duty was clearly crucial 
as he commissioned his men. They were told that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be preached in all nations in his name. So, well, are you, you want to be faithful to Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is your God and, and your Lord. Then you'll be interested in the things that he's interested in, won't you? And the thing that he is interested in, most of all, is, is my message of repentance being preached in all the nations of the world today. He declared that unless people repented, they would perish. He insisted on it a, a number of times. And Peter then has learned well from his Lord. And here he preaches it. He preaches it here. Come to the next chapter, chapter 3 of Acts. And he's preaching again. And what is he preaching about again? Verse 19, he's pressing on them the importance of repentance. Now the Apostle Paul was no different from Peter. Uh, in his sermon on Athens to the Greeks there, the philosophers on the Areopagus, we're told, he said to them, God commands all men everywhere to repent. He said to them, in Ephesus, they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And many years later then, Peter was an old man and he wrote a letter and his second letter he wrote, he said that God is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So this theme is uh, very important to God, if it's found like that in the Gospels, from the very first ministry of Jesus to the very last letters that his apostles sent. And none of us are going to find um, a meaningful relationship with God unless we are doing what the Bible calls repenting. Well, then, it's very important for you to find out this morning what that means. If God is so keen on this, then you must find out what he's keen on. Let me explain to you what repentance is. Let me clear away some of the rubble, first of all, that just confuses people's understanding of repentance. So, we move on to the second point, what repentance is not. Repentance is not remorse. He didn't say to the people of Jerusalem, well, you say sorry for what you did. We all know that ordinary people who've had to face up to the consequences of what they've done feel awfully sorry. What's happened to them? That's not repentance. That's remorse. We're sorry for folly that lost us our jobs. We're sorry for folly that lost us our children, that broke up our marriages, for people that got hurt. We're sorry for things we did that meant we went to prison. The consequences of sinning caught up with us, and that feeling is remorse. Esau was remorseful because he'd lost the blessing, not because he sold the blessing. Sorrow of the world works death, says Paul. The prodigal. Oh, how sorry he was. He stood there in the pigs and they ignored him. They were more interested in other pigs than in him. And he felt sorry. He could have stood up in that pig pen and, Oh, I'm sorry. I am sorry. I'm so sorry. Many, many times. 
And if he'd stayed there, as long as he lived and died in that city with just pigs for companions, then he would have been sorry. Sorry that he'd taken the inheritance from his father. Sorry that he'd left the farm. Sorry that he'd splurged everything on fair-weather friends. Sorry I left dad and big brother. I'm sorry sin ruined me. You think of uh, sailors in a storm. The boat is sinking. And they lighten the boat by throwing precious cargo into the sea. And then the storm passes and it's calm again. And they bail the boat out and they're so sorry. (laughs) They're so sorry for what they've lost. Many Jerusalem sinners were sad about the crucifixion of Christ. It was a bad business. They were sorry that this good man, this young man, this healer, this teacher had been killed by crucifixion. So sorry. Oh God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that it happened. I'm really sorry. Not enough. Their sorrow fell short of repenting. More is needed than remorse. Our sinning can be the occasion of great sorrow. And yet there is no sorrow for the actual sins that we have committed. What things are you sorry? Everybody here sorry for something? Oh, the usual things you say. In other words, our attention is drawn on ourselves. And we're sorry because of us and what we did. We're sorry we feel bad. We're sorry we're in trouble. We're sorry for the pills we need to lift us up. That that response is not repentance. But that sorrow is a lifeline that God throws to us. Repentance. Cling to the lifeline of repenting that God gives to you. So, sin is not remorse. Secondly, sin is not regret. You hear people all the time, oh, I wish I hadn't done it. That's regret. I wish I could live my life over. You can't. There's no way you can live your life over. There's no reincarnation. You just have this uh, one life, and this one life is soon past. And you can spend your life saying, I wish I hadn't gone there. I wish I hadn't agreed to that. I wish I hadn't signed that document. I wish I'd never seen his face. I wish I'd never agreed to that sweet talker who called me out of the blue and sold me worthless shares. Jerusalem sinners wish they'd never voted for Barabbas. They wish they'd never cried out about Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. They wish they'd got another chance. They wish they could start all over. Nobody can live his life all over. There's a ratchet on the wheel of time. And it just goes one way. Just one way. All the time. Never goes back. But you can receive a complete pardon from God. That covers all the past. That forgives it all. You can have a spiritual rebirth, a divine new beginning, that there can be a a new reality. Evangelical repentance is far more than mere regret. There was a man called Judas. Ah, you know him. And his so-called 
repentance was just regret afterwards. He had betrayed the innocent blood of the Lord Jesus. And the platform on which he was standing was so frail. It was flimsy. It collapsed. He fell into a void. He killed himself. You can know a great deal about the Bible and about Jesus Christ and still be a stranger to repentance. Thirdly, repentance is not reform. And many a Jerusalem sinner were saying, we must make sure that a young man is never crucified near Jerusalem ever again. Beastly Romans with their cruelty. must tighten up the law. We've got to live in a more just society. And some of you have vowed, well, I'm going to start over. I'm going to live right. From now on, I'm going to go to church every Sunday morning. And that's not repentance. That's just a natural conscience that's roused and warning and exhorting you. And repentance is more than that. In Jerusalem, they were not saying, I crucified him. I shouted for his death. My sins, my sins, O Savior, they nailed you to the tree. It's not enough to turn over a new leaf and start giving money and staying home with your wife in the evenings and treating your children and your neighbors better. It's not repentance. Reform is what we try to do and try very hard to do. We have good resolutions that last a week. From January the 1st, reform is always inadequate. And every little reform we manage to achieve, we're rather pleased about it. We ate less. We lost a stone. We drank less. We spent less. And we did it, our works. And we've got a rather smug feeling about our achievement. That's not repentance. That's reform. And fourthly, repentance is not religion. People, Peter didn't say to them, you need to be more religious. You, you go now to every feast, three times a year, you're there. Make sacrifices every time you sin. Attend the synagogue every Sabbath. That's what you've got to do. Didn't talk to them. Didn't say anything like that. About their religion. Most students at the university think that members of the Christian Union want them to become religious students. Not so. In fact, religion has become the chief substitute in Wales for repentance. If religion could meet, meet the need of every heart, if religion could change your life, why do you think that God sent his son into the world to be born of a virgin and to die on a cross if religion could save us. Religions are men's greatest crimes. In the name of religion, men will behead other men on camera and they will say God is great. In the name of religion, they will burn a man alive. They will encourage a widow to throw herself onto the funeral pyre of her husband. Religion. It's a veil 
between man and God. It's the source of unending confusion. Jesus Christ was killed in the name of religion. It's the most organized opposition to our Savior today. Many people who go to church never repent. They they just become more religious. So those are four things then that repentance is not. So what are some examples of repentance? Let me go on to this, my third point. Let me give you classic illustrations. Let me try to bring your feelings into this teaching from heaven. There's the repentance of David. He had power. Unchallenged power. And he abused it cruelly, like any reprobate tyrant does. He took women. He took concubines. Wife after wife. Absolutely horrible. The author of the 23rd Psalm did that. He fancied a married woman once, and he had no qualms about taking her too, and she got pregnant, and then he had her husband murdered. And after quite a time, after a courageous prophet came to him and nailed his sin to his heart, David repented. And he repented deeply because he'd sinned very deeply. The Holy Spirit gave him, created in in his mind and in his affections, a a, a really powerful prayer of repentance. And and David composed it. It it was the two. It was God and man together, as it is in the inspiration of Scripture. Here's some of it. Have mercy on me. O God, uh, according to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression. My my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done evil in your sight. So that you approve right when you speak and justified when you judge. I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. You know it? You know it, don't you? Wonderful words. Eternal words. Words which men will be praying on the last day of life in this world. You know anything of it? That grief that you've sinned against so great a God, against much knowledge and light and gospel privileges that you've had. That's the first example. The second example is the tax collector in the temple. Think of it as though you've never heard it before. Jesus saw two men in the temple. One was a Pharisee and when he prayed in the temple, he stood up so everyone could see him and hear him as he bragged about all that he had done and not done. And then there was a repentant, avaricious tax collector, just live for money. He's so different, the tax collector, 
stood at a distance. He couldn't mix with people. He couldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast. He said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus said about him that he went out of that temple that day a repentant, justified man. He who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself, that's what repentance is, it's a humbling of yourself, will be exalted. Have you known any brokenness like that in your life about your sin? The third example is uh, the prodigal son. Think of it again as if you've never heard the greatest of parables. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to them, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Accept me back as one of your hired servants. He got up and went. That's repentance. Not just the words, but the action that accompanies the words. Have you abandoned a, a, a silly lifestyle? A foolish, proud, self-centered lifestyle. Have you come to yourself and said, I, I, I've just got to go back to the Father who loved me and blessed me so greatly. Are you a real Christian? No real Christian is a stranger to repentance. And the fourth is then the repentance of Peter. When he denied his Lord, he denied him. A little girl asked him, aren't you a Galilean just like that man they've just taken prisoner tonight? And he, with oaths, denied it. And Jesus looked straight at him. And he remembered the pastoral love that he'd had. Peter, you be careful now. Before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me thrice. Remember what he had told him this? And Peter went out and wept bitterly. That's how he expressed his, his repentance. He howled with grief. Leaned against the wall. His legs were weak. Oh, what had he said about Jesus? How he'd let his Lord down. Here we are, four examples. That's repentance in the New Testament. That's what we're talking about, a new grief. It isn't um, a futile exercise. They thought something would come from doing that. They, They believed that it was effectual. That when you went to God and spoke to God with whatever little bit of repentance you could screw up and bring to him, that it had an effect, that God heard. And God forgave you what you had been and what you had done. They justified God, that what God had done, how he had dealt with them, the broken heart they had was just and right and fair. It would take in God's side against themselves. I've offended a God who's loved me so much. He's been so good to me, and I've blown it, haven't I? 
They weren't complaining that God was overstricted. They said, well, you know, you could, I've kept eight of the Ten Commandments. He's very tight, isn't he? Didn't say anything like that at all. I did wrong. I played the fool. God is right in all his ways. You compare the way that uh, David had acted with Bathsheba with Psalm 51. And repentance, defiance, and repentance. You compare the prodigal son swaggering off with his bag of money, gloating, planning what he was going to do with it, and how he walked back. You compare Peter cursing the girl and saying he'd never heard of of Jesus of Nazareth, with Peter weeping bitterly. They're in reverse gear, aren't they? They're going back now. They're weeping now. And God is being honored and praised by that. They're at war with themselves. That's evangelical repentance. It's a famous case in the Highlands. Uh, A woman called Muckle Kate. And Muckle Kate broke all the commandments um, except thou shalt not kill. She never killed anyone. And she led a mean, harsh life until her old age. And then through the influence of a local pastor, Lachlan Mackenzie, and she saw her sin and her lostness. She really saw it. Ooh, she saw it. And she wept over it. And she wept and wept. She wept so much that she almost lost her sight. Oh, well, that's a sad idea. That's a tragic story that a a woman should weep herself blind. It's not a sad story. Not a sad story at all. Would to God the people of Wales would weep themselves virtually blind because of how they've treated God. Because of their guilt and their folly. Better to go to heaven blind than to go to hell with both eyes opened. Don't you agree? If you don't agree, then it were better that you were blind. Better to weep yourself blind. Grip repentance. It's part of your Christian walk. It's part of what Christianity is, who God is. Grip it. And never let it go until you walk through the gates of heaven. Her eyes were opened and she saw something of her life as God saw it. And you say, well, you know, I've not lived a, I've not lived a bad life and uh, I've lived a very decent life. I've never harmed anybody. And if you are thinking like that, you don't know yourself. You don't know how deceitful and desperately wicked your heart is because it's the heart of a natural person. When God opens our eyes and shows us, this is how you are, you weep like Peter, you weep like Muckle Kate, you rehearse speeches of repentance and go back to your father. You're like the man in the temple. He can't look up. Just looks at the 
dirt and thinks he's no different from the dirt. Blessed are they that mourn, for they and they alone shall be comforted. A man once uh, called my friend Morris Roberts, and he called him in order to read to him a letter that he just read that morning from his teenage uh, daughter. She left it for him. She'd gone off to school, and she'd left the letter on the table, and the father said, listen to this, Morris. She couldn't tell me herself because she said, it's so emotional, I can't say it. I've got to write it down, Dad. And he said this, dear father and mother, I want you both to know the last few days I've come to see Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've given my heart and life to him. Thank you both for being such wonderful mum and dad and bringing me up to know the gospel and for taking me to church and Sunday school. I feel so wonderful with the change in my life. I love Jesus Christ. I can't tell you this in words because I'd break down crying. I'm so happy I want you to read this letter. And he was, he was weeping and sniffing and swallowing as he spoke to Morris about it. And Morris had a job to be stoical. What had happened? The Holy Spirit had taken truths that she'd known ever since she knew any truth and laid them on her heart. When he comes, he convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment so that we can repent. She saw how guilty she was, but more than that, she saw the loveliness of Jesus. This Jesus, the Son of God, says, Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And true conversion begins then with a sense of, of repentance. And I'm not saying every convert weeps. But I'm saying there's always some fruit of repentance. I think when I was converted, I didn't have a great deal of repentance at that time. I was so glad that I'd found Jesus as my Savior. But then repentance then is an acorn. And it grows. And it grows. Whether there are salty tears, well, that's a very secondary matter, isn't it? Some people weep more easily than others. My friend Stuart has never cried. He says, I... I Clear ducts, you know. He says, I, I can't cry. But there's no coming to God without repentance. When, when you repent, you turn your back on how you've lived without Jesus Christ. And you start to live with him. And you start to say, be with me on the school bus. Help me in gym. And help me do my homework. And help me go to college. And give me good friends. Keep me pure. There's a person, I'm thinking of one student in particular. He loved photography. And he said to himself once, this infatuation with photography has become overwhelming. It's become dominant in my life. So he visited eBay and he sold his camera and his lenses and his the whole lot. He sold it. And he told me what he was planning to do. How? I was really concerned for him. I was really concerned that Christianity doesn't make us fanatics. There's nothing wrong with having a camera, a nice camera, and taking photographs. Many of you do, don't you? He said to me, when I protested, you don't know what a hold it has over me, and I didn't. 
you're not aware of what an idol it's become in my life. I didn't. And he was a, and is today a desperately earnest Christian. He wants to please God in everything. And it just, it was this, it was the test that came into his life at, at this time. And if you're a Christian, you want to give your all to God. You want to be a 24-7, 100% Christian, don't you? And give him a bit on the way to something that you love more. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me. Because I can't do it by myself. Help me to tear it from the throne and worship only thee. And my last point is that uh, repentance is to characterize our whole Christian lives. We never stop repenting. Jesus says, and when you pray, and he gives the Lord's Prayer, and you pray, and forgive us our trespasses. We're always saying that. At the end of every day, we say, sorry about today, Lord. Forgive me today, Lord. And and he does. At that moment, he forgives us. It's not just a repentance something in the Abba Conference or in camp. Or when there's a specially powerful sense of God's presence in one of our meetings. It's not just then that, uh, that you repent. And so then I pat you on the back and say, well done, and uh, off you go. You're a Christian now. And soon you're back. It's a cold time. I pray bad. I preach bad. And you suffer. But all your life, you're repenting. I'm saying to you that repentance is a linear grace. It is not... Um, punctilious, not a point. It's not definitive, like justification is. But repentance is something we experience all our lives, and sometimes very dramatically and powerfully, and other times it's there in the background, but it's always there. Peter describes in his second letter a dangerous uh, absence of feelings of repentance. But if anyone does not have them, he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. First Peter 1.9. And that's, that's, a, that's foolish to forget it. If we remember our sins, then God forgets them. If we forget our sins... God remembers them. I don't suppose there's been a sermon that I've repaired, that I've prepared, that I've sat in my study and worked on a sermon. This sermon was no exception. When I haven't been conscious of past sins, when God has reminded me, the devil has reminded me, whatever the dynamics of that remembrance is, I just thought of, Oh, people I've hurt, ugly things I did in the past years and years and years ago. So a Christian is someone who goes to God and he's repenting. He's, he's really feeling sorry. He's really confessing his sins to God. That's what Peter told them to do. 
And uh, if you put off repentance for another day, you'll have another day to be repenting of. And you'll have one less day to be repentant. So please don't put it off. Uh, God will respond to late repentance. You think of the dying thief. So don't despair. But he has nowhere promised he will give repentance and give forgiveness to them that repent. He's not said, well, I'll give it to you. I will give it to you. Where does he say that in the Bible? But you're going to have it one day, and so you can, you can take your time and enjoy all this vain world's golden store and ignore him. Where has he promised you? Oh, well, sometime in your life he, he will give you repentance. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. One dying thief repented, so you don't despair. But only one, so that you don't presume. The only time we have to repent is now. The only time. If God's today is too soon for your repentance, then you saying tomorrow, tomorrow, yes, when I've tasted the world, tomorrow I'll repent and, and believe. That may be too late for God's acceptance. Now is the accepted time. Now is the time. There are idols. You've given too much of your heart and life to them. It's time to change, men and women. It's time for all of you, all of us, to change. Now is the day of repentance. Men and brethren, what shall we do? You've come here to a gospel church and listen to a gospel pulpit and gospel friends are around you and you say to them, what, what am I to do then? Repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from the sin of unbelief. Cast yourself on. This lovely, welcoming Savior. You, you come to him. You come to him today. Lord, bless your word, we pray now. And oh, may the evangelical grace of repentance be poured out from heaven upon all of us here and every worshipping Christian in this town. May there be a spirit of repentance, of sorrow for sin, as there was in Jerusalem when 3,000 of them were convicted. Oh, may we see such days again in thy mercy. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.